0: welcome to the seventh episode of the sra podcast this is your host alex unva and this week we're finally moving into the big leagues and starting to have guests on the show so this week i am joined by Faye eclair a fellow member of the sra and very handy and helpful organizer we have here at the sra actually part of the original members who got this organization off the ground so how are you doing today
1: I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on.
0: Always good to have more voices, especially when it gets tiring listening to just me.
1: Oh, it's not that bad.
0: So, on the big topics today, we actually have Faye here to talk about some things near and dear to her heart. But we'll get this episode started off talking about the Democrats.
1: Uh, The Democrats.
0: (laughs) For those not in the loop, the Democrats are having an identity crisis in this era of Trumpism. Currently, their best shot at the 2020 presidential election is the, I guess, not really up and coming anymore. She used to be the junior senator, but now she's pretty well solidified herself within the Senate. That Elizabeth Warren has recently begun an all-but-name her presidential campaign. She's been touring the country, talking about policies and things that she wants to get done. And so one of the biggest things that came out recently is she has started championing the notion of accountable capitalism, which is interesting as she has simultaneously gone on the record of saying that she is not a socialist and she does not support socialist policies, as I guess somebody brought that up to her after the election of Alexandra Cortez. So her example of accountable capitalism is what we've come to expect from social democratic policies. It includes a lot of very heavy-handed welfare, Medicare for All, that sort of thing, as well as the interesting thing that this actually came up on the last episode of the podcast, this idea of workers uh, electing a portion of the board of directors of a company. In this case, she is advocating for, it looks like, a third of the board of directors to be elected by the workers. I have my thoughts on this, but I'll go ahead and let you go first, Faye, on what you think of this current wave in the Democratic Party of trying to find their soul, as it were, in this great journey for the desert they're going through.
1: Well, it's certainly interesting seeing how the different candidates are lining up and who is taking which tack. There's sort of the um, debate right now between focusing purely on... I don't like the phrase identity politics, but there is a, a trend of focusing more on appealing to issues that are important to certain voting blocks, you know lgbt rights black you know issues that are important to the black community versus other people like elizabeth warren who are maybe focusing on a much broader sort of economic message so warren's platform is pretty similar to bernie's i haven't gone through it with a fine-toothed comb or anything but i do think this um workers electing people to the board of corporations is a very interesting step i think it's certainly a step in the right direction but also it's a far, it's a far cry from the type of socialism that i'd like to see since the board of directors, while they are involved in the governance of the company, they're not necessarily owners of the company. So the profits are still going to investors. They're still going to private capital. It's just that workers would be getting a greater voice within the bureaucracy of the uh, corporation.
0: Definitely a fair assessment. I've I've always found these policies of, because this isn't the first time this has been tried in uh, American politics. Of course, I last episode discussed Keith Ellison suggesting a similar method and it, I believe that it actually came up during the new deal deal era as well and it it part of what you said that yes it's it's a greater involvement in the bureaucracy of the company but it's not really changing the fundamental problem that companies have today that if you go through many corporate charters one of the big things that people sometimes don't understand is why why can't management why can't a benevolent manager so this idea of the benevolent dictator applied to a benevolent manager. Why can't a benevolent manager give his workers raises? Why can't they insure benefits? Why can't they do this or that even if they want to? And one of the things that has come out, and there is a legal history to this, is that shareholders are a essentially a protected class within the corporate charter. That most corporate charters out there with... Bef- occasional exceptions, like SpaceX, which is one of those outliers, that the corporate charter specifically entitles shareholders to the profits of the company. And so shareholders can actually sue companies in court if for one reason or another they feel that that is being violated and that the share of the profits is not going as much to them.
1: There's a practical example of this that happened recently. Last year, American Airlines uh, gave pay raises to its pilots and flight attendants. You know, the people who actually make the airline function. And uh, investors were very upset. They, uh, several people sold stock. The uh, American Airlines stock price dipped by 5%. And uh, investors and members of the board complained to the CEO and openly talked about replacing him because he had made this uh, move to better compensate workers. Even though it was, you know, it would ar- arguably be better for the company in the long run to have well-paid, motivated, happy employees. The fact that investors weren't getting all of the possible profits, and that even a tiny fraction of it was going to the labor force. It was shocking to them. It was offensive. And they talked about removing the CEO because of it. It's, it's absurd.
0: Well, and that's something that it's it's the problem that people sometimes don't see when talking about reformist policies. And I think this is the thing the Democrats are starting to run into as we enter this age where increasingly the political forces in America are no longer this center-right center-left dichotomy but instead increasingly either reactionary or leftist in nature is that by holding on to that idea of the new democrats that came in with bill clinton this neoliberal ideology that he ushered in to the party to set them on the course that they have been because of that i feel that people like bernie people like elizabeth warren people like alexandra cortez are starting on this path to, of reform, that they're all very much reformists. Uh, Cortez may be the most, quote-unquote, extreme or radical of them, but she is still very much a reformist.
1: For what it's worth, some of the members of my DSA chapter have spoken to Alexandria Cortez, and they say that she is, in fact, Uh, fairly radical, but she has to tone down the message for electability reasons, which I think is something that's going to be very common on the left. I know that a lot of people believe or hope that Bernie Sanders is more radical than he puts on. But uh, just anecdotally, from what I've heard, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is maybe a little more socialist than she lets on in some of her speeches.
0: Well, that would definitely be a positive thing if she were. The hope is that as the Democrats. Kind of find their way and decide whether or not this is going to be the path they go down, that even if they only in name go down the path of social democracy, that this does get people started on the path towards more radical ideas as people see that these solutions are temporary at best uh, another thing related to the platform that as the democrats are finding their the soul of their party and part of it's going towards social democracy like we see in european countries uh, a article that caught my attention this week was from the new york magazine it's a very fascinating article we say the thing we've learned from history is that people don't learn from history and this article's headline is that the democratic platform needs to be that they're not trump and that the democrats don't need any other platform other than they're not trump and this is just we we've seen this so many times before and uh, perhaps most recently and most notably of 2016 that almost the only thing you could discern from clinton's policies was she wasn't trump Uh, there was very little in the way of substance after the primaries after she got done debating and defeating bernie sanders in the primaries there was very little in the way of substantial political groundwork that she was doing in her campaign but there was a constant narrative from her and in the media of well this is do you do you want trump do you want this awful man who has all these awful things uh, or do you want her and so A lot of lesser evilism going on there and it's just it's astounding to see that two years later we're in the same position
1: i think that a lot of the focus on trump um i think a lot of it comes from a desire to not have to engage with the division that's growing within the party hatred for donald trump is one of the few strands of democratic ideology that are common among both the progressives and the neoliberals uh, everyone agrees that Trump is awful and so focusing on that focusing on uh focusing on that storyline and not dealing it's it's sort of an avoidance strategy they just don't want to deal with this uh uncomfortable difference in opinion and they'd rather focus on the Trump issue but focusing on the Trump issue also is more of a strategy adopted by the right of the party. The more centrist, more neoliberal... Uh, more neoliberal corners of the party would like to try to draw in the votes they need from moderate Republicans who were turned off by Trump. And so by focusing on the Trump story and focusing on that, they're hoping that they can pull these moderate Republicans to the left and get them to vote for Democrats. They essentially are going after the Romney crowd. They're going after the McCain crowd. They're going after, you know, these old school traditionalist Republicans who are not okay with Donald Trump as a human being but personally i don't think that's going to work i don't think that those voters really exist in the numbers that certain analysts would like them to
0: well it's interesting bringing that up of the trying to capture moderate republicans as if you look at public polling policy the and gallup polls there's there's so much out there that the democrats could be trying to win over moderate republicans on other than donald trump and people's hatred and dislike of him that i thinking of topics off the top of my head when people are polled about things like health care about things like social safety nets things that are components of the left and of social democracy there tends to be even across party lines even across party lines when you talk to republican voters most people aren't going out and thinking that everyone else needs to suffer so that they can prosper. That's not how most people are. There are definitely people who are like that. But when you do polling and when you go out and talk to the people, I've noticed this even here in Deep Red, Kansas, that when you start talking to people about things like health care, about simple things like making sure that children have health care, that children have good quality health care, well, obviously that's something that people agree upon. People agree upon that children should be able to go to the hospital, and it just builds off of that. And instead of instead of working on these issues, instead of being an issues-based party, which is what parties exist for, now it's turned into this, I guess, ideologue sort of deal where, or demagogue perhaps, that big figures on either side rather than any actual issues that majority of Americans across party lines support.
1: It becomes a horse race between high-profile, essentially, political celebrities, you know? It's instead of focusing on issues, it becomes, oh, Trump versus Obama versus Chuck Schumer versus Mitch McConnell. It, it, you know, and that I don't think that's universal across politics. I think a lot of people do think and focus primarily on the issues, but once you get into the electoral pol- political scene, once you get into that mindset, it, you listen to the pundit class, it's It's all about the personalities because the interactions between people make it easier to sell newspapers or well to sell online subscriptions to Washington Post in, these days it it's a It's a lot easier to write about people than to write about ideas because when you write about ideas, you have to be ideologically consistent, and uh most of these people aren't.
0: That's very true. It's very true that a lot of what we see in the political discourse today is very much driven by the punditry, as it were. So
1: if there's one ideological tenet, that does seem to be coming around as a uh, focal point for Democrats, and I think this is rather unfortunate. Uh, the purity test that seems to be consistent across both the progressive and centrist wings of the Democratic Party is gun control. Centrists are perfectly willing to allow candidates in red districts to be soft on abortion or to be you know, soft on progressive economic issues. Progressives are maybe... Uh, Uh, willing to let people be more lax in other ways, but across the board, the issue that seems to be this is a stance that you must take or you're not a real Democrat, unfortunately, it seems to be gun control.
0: Well, transitioning away from the Democrats and right into another story that just won't go away, we have the topic of 3D printed gun parts, and whole guns for that matter. So this has come back up in the news briefly, that for... Starters, Reddit, has recently updated their Terms of Service to reflect that not only are trade posts concerning guns and ammunitions now banned, but they have also banned the distribution of digital gun files. So this is specifically aimed at 3D printed gun files, and it does say in the Terms of Service 3D images, I believe. Whether or not this would be construed to be specifically for 3D printing or also, I guess, schematics for a CNC machine, either way I'm sure they would consider it a violation.
1: Yeah, it's really unfortunate that uh, we're seeing this sort of corporate level censorship where obviously it can't be enforced at a government level because of the First Amendment, or so one would hope. But there is definitely an effort by companies to distance themselves from guns uh, simply for PR reasons and very likely liability. No one no one wants to be the site where the next mass shooter got the plans for their 3D printed lower Um So it's unfortunate that this is the route that they're trying to take, but in the long run, I don't. It's not going to work. You can't. You can't censor a file off the internet. It's the Barbra Streisand effect. The more you try to suppress it, the more it's going to pop up. Just look at the history of uh, torrenting for music and movies and video games. It's. They've been trying for decades now to shut these sites down, and every time they shut one down, the next one pops up. It's like uh, it's like sweeping water with a broom. These files have been made. They've been put on the internet. They've been downloaded millions of times. They're not going away
0: it's very true it's it's the internet things spread at incredible speeds especially when people feel like they're about to be oppressed and censored and that they have a tendency to mirror things very rapidly well where well, reddit is trying to sweep water with a broom a article from wired came out recently on this topic kind of a not particularly related to reddit itself but as 3D printed guns continue to float around in the news. I guess they decided to do an analytical article on it. And they, they were discussing the broader concept of what 3D printing gun parts has brought up. That what really is causing all this commotion, rather than ghost guns or things like that that the Washington State Attorney General is freaking out about in their takedown order that they've filed with the uh, judiciary... Is not so much things like the Liberator, which is an entirely plastic gun, which still has metal because you still need metal to shoot a bullet, and it'll probably blow up in your hand after the second shot, if not the first. The issue that this article points out that it's really digging at is that for something like an AR-15, which has become the ubiquitous liberal boogeyman, as it were, that the AR-15 is brought up any time gun control is brought up because it is... Just the perfect example in their minds of a gun that nobody in their right mind needs. Why would you ever need an AR-15? You don't hunt with AR-15s. You should just have your 1898 bolt action or whatnot.
1: Get the old 30-30 Winchester out.
0: Yeah. So not only is the AR-15 just this example of the big, bad, scary assault rifle, but it's also the perfect example that because it is so ubiquitous, because it is so well known. There are dozens and dozens of manufacturers who make all sorts of parts for it. And so part of the federal regulation scheme that has come down is, of course, as you start making accessories for a gun, where does the accessory stop and the gun begin? And for the AR-15, it's the perfect example because it really has been open sourced in, nature- in a way that the schematics for it, the patents for it, I believe, Almost all the patents for modern AR-15 have expired. It was, it's a, it's a quite an old gun now, actually. But because those patents and those schematics are freely available, it's very easy for a company to get started and sell aftermarket parts for it. Which means it's not hard for an individual to get all the individual parts together and then build themselves an AR-15. And there's plenty of guides out there on the internet and in libraries even that tell you how to do that. And honestly, modern guns, well, very precision made, are not that complicated for the most part. And so what the 3D printing fiasco here is bringing to a head is that of course you can 3D print an AR-15 lower. Uh, Probably not the best idea. You'd probably still want to go ahead and mill it out. But because the lower, as the federal government and state governments have tried to regulate this and tried to pin down what exactly is a gun, we've gotten to the point where the lower is what's considered the legal part of the gun. And because you can now print yourself off a lower, well, you can go buy all the other parts of an AR-15 without background checks, without licenses, without what have you. Even though in some states, those aren't even necessary, necessarily. So, of course, I'm of the opinion that this is a non-issue, that if people can buy kits and put kits together, I don't think you're ever going to be able to really ban that sort of thing, because in in the modern age that we live in, and even back in the 1800s, the problem of gunsmithing is not the technology, because we've had the technology to mass-produce rifles since the Civil War. Instead, it is a matter of precision it's a matter of making the gun precise enough and elegantly enough that it doesn't blow up in your hands or otherwise just shoot really crooked but because we are at the point where cnc machines are in the budget point of a we'll go ahead and say middle class person somebody who is making a decent amount of money maybe not rich but probably still sub one hundred thousand dollars a year but with CNC machines that are out now, you can get a small desk one that will mill out parts for you for probably thousand to two thousand dollars. So I I think this is probably going to end up backfiring since all these attorney generals have pushed the issue to court. The courts are going to be forced to rule on this issue, and I can't see short of just sheer judicial bias how a judiciary could explain legally. Why the definition of gun needs to be broadened to all these additional accessories because that would be what it would be necessary to regulate this situation we found ourselves in.
1: Well,. Not necessarily. The uh, The conversation in Europe with regards to 3D printed guns is actually substantially different to the conversation in the US, because in most European countries, the legal firearm, the component that is legally the gun, is not the receiver. Rather, uh, they consider the pressure-bearing components of a firearm to be the regulated parts. So the barrel, the bolt, the slide if it's a pistol, those are the parts that are actually regulated. And those are actually much more difficult to manufacture in a home setup. Since, the, since these parts are under significantly more stress, You know, a bolt needs to be much more precisely machined and it needs to have a specific heat treatment and metal composition to prevent it from being too soft or too hard that it shatters. And... Creating a rifled barrel uh, is a very difficult procedure. It's it's simpler now with the technology that we have, but it still requires very expensive specialized machines. It's you you can't buy a uh, rifling machine down at the uh, down at the harbor freight. It's not it's just not as easily available. It's specialized equipment. So in Europe. They don't really care that someone can print a 3D printed lower because they're not going to be able to manufacture the bolt and the bolt carrier or the barrel of an AR-15. They would still have to purchase those. They would either have to get very ex- very expensive set of equipment to manufacture it, or they would have to buy those uh, components through legal, regulated means. So the only 3D printing issue they're worried about in Europe are the actual Liberator-style plastic guns. But they have a regime that makes it much more easier to regulate the production of firearms they were much more forward thinking in their uh, restriction of their citizens civil liberties
0: a fair point it's a, it's a fair point that of course if you're going to label any part of the gun a gun i i do think a barrel is a better option to say that's part of a gun than the lower receiver mostly because the lower receiver is just a piece of milled out metal that everything plugs into essentially it's,
1: But here in the U.S., here in the U.S., they didn't necessarily think of that. So that gives uh, gun owners who are skeptical of the state a little bit more leeway than our comrades in Europe.
0: Indeed. Uh, I'd like to end this segment on a reminder for those listening, uh, if anyone happens to be listening to this podcast that is skeptical of these 3D-printed guns, and I I can see why somebody would be, because it does sound pretty scary sometimes the way... It's phrased in the media and the way these Attorney Generals are phrasing it. That, oh, you have the Liberator and it's this all plastic gun and people can't find it and all this stuff about ghost guns. It's worth remembering. As far as these whole plastic guns like the Liberator, it's very easy to find videos of these things just blowing up. Because at the end of the day, a 3D printer, even a high-quality industrial 3D printer, is going to be very hard pressed to print a plastic gun that can survive the stresses of firing a bullet. And this is just really easy to think about when you ask yourself, well if these are undetectable in metal detectors, why haven't why haven't intelligence agencies use these more often? Why isn't why doesn't the CIA have its operatives carry around plastic guns? So they can get from metal detectors in other countries. And the answer is it's just, it's not worth it. These things break. Uh, the, oh, it, it, you run into the exact problem talking about with metal treatment. That you have to have something that's sufficiently soft but sufficiently hard. Plastic, you can't really get a happy medium of plastic. That either your plastic's going to be too soft and bullets going to wreck it as it's going through it. Or it's going to be too hard and your gun's going to shatter. So it's worth remembering things like that when you listen to the mainstream news sometimes and they, they can get on a soapbox and maybe not portray reality as it is. Well, transitioning away from portraying reality not as it is to portraying reality not as it is, the FCC has come under some hot water, particularly Ajit Pai, current chairman of the FCC, So back in May 2017, the FCC claimed to suffer from a DDoS attack, a distributed denial of service attack, wherein their website was down for, I believe, a day or two before it went back up. They claimed this was coinciding with the public comment period of when they were changing the rules on net neutrality, specifically to remove the concept of net neutrality that had been instituted under the Obama administration in 2015, I believe. At the time, security experts examined this and said they were very skeptical that a DDoS attack had actually occurred just due to the way the website had gone down and other various technical things that I'm not exactly privy to or fully understand at this time. But there was skepticism at, at that time whether or not a DDoS attack had actually happened. Uh, sometime after this supposed attack, Ajit Pai was informed by one of his staff members that the agency's CIO had misinformed Congress about the nature of the attack and apparently there was no attack at all. Or if there were, was nothing out of the normal. Uh, Many websites get attacked all the time. My dad's little bitty, nothing website for his business gets attacked all the time, but that doesn't mean that it's a targeted attack. In this instance, there was no targeted distributed denial of service attack, especially at the scale necessary to shut down government servers.
1: From what I understand when I was following this story at the time, the most likely series of events that was proposed was simply there were so many people leaving comments that this, you know, crappy government website simply wasn't designed to handle the traffic. Either the server was overloaded or there was an error with the database. Something went wrong. The website went down just due to traffic. And high traffic looks a lot like DDoS. You know, DDoS is basically uh, overwhelming a website with garbage traffic. But in this case, it really was Ajit Pai. Uh, Ajit Pai is really of the Trumpian flavor of politician or politico, and that uh, they very much have a victim mentality, and they always want to portray themselves as being under attack. So I think that, I think that maybe Pai heard, or one of his staffers heard, that this, uh, that this surge in traffic was like a DDoS attack, and they just ran with it and said that it was, you know, I don't think it was necessarily some people, I think, proposed that they deliberately shut down the website to prevent people from leaving comments, considering that they ignored those comments anyway. I don't I don't see why they would have bothered. I think they were just trying to paint themselves as the victim.
0: Definitely. They, they've had previous run ins with especially the FCC under Ajit Pai has played the victim card more than once. The main issue here, I think that people are starting to get riled up with the revelations now, is that the chief information officer within the FCC, in his official report that Pi forwarded to Congress as part of the FCC's package on the issue, the chief information officer did basically unequivocally state there was an attack. And so because there was this written record to the congressional hearing that this happened, and now we have found out, okay, it didn't happen, because that people naturally expect consequences, and instead the Attorney General's office has declined to even investigate the matter further, and has completely declined to prosecute any individuals involved for submitting what amounts to either straight out false information or particularly incompetent information.
1: Perjury? What's that? I thought that only happened... I thought that was a crime only Democrats could be charged with.
0: Well, when you, when you have a president out in public literally saying, don't believe what you see, uh, I don't even think there's a legal definition of perjury anymore. If you can't believe what you see, then you can't believe what you hear either.
1: Definitely. A, there's definitely a loose relationship between government and the truth these days.
0: I, I think all the... Uh, Anarchists in the audience are saying this has always been the case, but we'll, we'll, we'll slide <laughs> wrong. we'll slide right past that issue and enter a quick, lighthearted breather before we engage in some even more serious politicking. So your moment of zen today, I will include this in the show notes for everyone to watch, that in a clip on Fox and Friends, as a host on Fox and Friends, says that America was great because we beat communist japan in world war ii
1: that there's damn communist japanese <laughs>
0: for the non-historians in the crowd uh, the imperial japan was not a, a communist regime that would be most closely described as fascist in nature however as it was still a monarchy uh, you could make that claim as well but the Definitely the communists were not strongly involved in the Japanese government at that time, nor do I think they are at this time either. I'm not sure Japan has ever had a communist government or party in power.
1: No, they definitely haven't. <laughs> uh,
0: the other quick topic to discuss is the military parade that a lot of hullabaloo has been made around. Uh, Trump has been planning a great, gorgeous Fantastic, greatest of all time, lovely, patriotic military parade to show off just how great America is again. It, it's been cancelled, so we, I guess making America great is going to have to wait until next year. Apparently, in this glorious parade he was planning, it says here that the Pentagon estimate had gone up to as much as $92 million to pay for the full-scale parade. The president has said this is too much, and this is the fault of Washington, D.C. politicians.
1: Yeah, well, you know, fascists do like their parades. Honestly, with Trump, I think we could probably just have a single tank drive in circles around a a camera and stream that into his office. Hopefully he wouldn't know the difference. Save us a bit of money, too.
0: It is worth noting that in the old USSR, a money-saving tactic they used to do for their military parades was that they would have tank battalions drive through overpasses and they just film the tank battalion going through the overpass and then they pan the camera back around and they just have a continuous loop of troops and tanks going under overpasses so that, you know, those tanks cost a lot of money. It's not cheap to fuel a tank. I think they get like two miles to the gallon, so.
1: Oh, and M1 especially. So. Oh, yeah, I think I think having a Potemkin tank brigade is a good idea. I think that's something we should invest in. Good good use of state resources. Never mind all the homeless vets.
0: Yes, it is worth noting that this $92 million that the quote was at, and of course Trump assures us that he will lower the price by the time this is all over, but we'll see if it lowers the price or if he just manages to divert some of that money to his private businesses that he has in Washington DC uh, for 92 million dollars there's a lot of things you could do with 92 million dollars i i think it's fair to say that it, yeah you could you could feed some homeless vets you could you could probably feed all the homeless people in Washington DC for a while on 92 million dollars mm-hmm. keeping in mind that this military parade in case anyone thinks that this would be creating jobs The people participating in the military parade would probably already be active duty military, which means they're already guaranteed a certain amount every two weeks as part of their salary as being in the military. Maybe you'd have some reservists who'd get some active duty out of it, but otherwise the people who'd be involved in this probably already have jobs. It's not like you're going to create new jobs, and especially for a parade, any jobs created would be temporary.
1: Uh, from what i've heard, a lot of the cost increase was actually going to be in the form of overtime pay for d c metro police so that's that's where a lot of that money would be going no new no new jobs, but lots of extra money for uh lots of extra money for the cops that are already on the payroll
0: definitely well we'll leave this very slow lightning round as it were and move on to the big topics of the day and Uh, partially why we have such an esteemed guest on the podcast, that this is a topic near and dear to your heart, and one I must admit that I have not been following as much. Uh, We'll begin at the story here at home that a Colorado baker, whose name I don't remember and don't wish to, because I don't wish to give him any more fame than he already has, or infamy, as it were, Uh, He is the same Colorado baker, as people might remember, that went to the Supreme Court because he refused to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. Uh, He won, kind of, sort of, in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court did a cop-out and refused to rule on the issue of whether or not someone could claim religious liberty allows them to deny service based on sexual orientation or, as we are getting to now, gender identity. Uh, They did not answer that question, despite that being the central question of the case. Instead, they said that he had been treated unfairly by the State uh, Discrimination Board. That the State Discrimination Board was showing a clear hostility to his religion, and so they threw it out on that basis, but they did not actually resolve any lingering legal questions. As a result, he is running into trouble once again. This time around, he has refused to bake a cake for a transgender woman who requested a blue cake on the outside and a pink filling on the inside as he is claiming this would offend his religious sensibilities because god made men men and women women
1: right so i don't think it was mentioned before but i am a i am a transgender woman so this is a story and a a series of stories that i've been trying to follow pretty closely and uh honestly i'm kind of concerned about this one so uh originally when the uh when the first uh, lawsuit over this bakery, you know, first started moving up through the federal court system, I think there was a lot of optimism in LGBTQ activist circles. There, I think there was a lot of optimism that this uh, this baker would lose his case, that there would be a ruling in favor of uh, in favor of the uh, gay couples involved. But as you said, that didn't happen. The court refused to rule on the central issue and essentially threw it out on a technicality. So the central question of whether or not it's legal for a business like a cake shop to discriminate against, um, and it's interesting because he claims that he wasn't discriminating against the customers because they were gay or because they were in a same-sex relationship or marriage. He was discriminating against them on the basis that he didn't want to create a cake to celebrate a uh, same-sex Wedding. He didn't want to uh, create what he claimed was a piece of art as a wedding cake. What he claimed was a piece of art. He didn't want to create that for a ceremony that he believed to be inherently sinful and against God. So he, so he claims that he would gladly bake a cake for someone who is homosexual or bisexual, but that he would not, uh, he would not do it if it in some way celebrated their sexuality. And while this was. But while this uh, case was going through the courts, uh, a, the transgender woman who he discriminated against uh, was a lawyer. And I think she was intentionally uh, going through with this plan. in the expectation that the Supreme Court would rule favorably for the LGBTQ community in the case of making a cake to celebrate a same-sex wedding, I believe she was hoping that it could be immediately be followed up by a case affirming that yes by that same standard they would have to make a cake to celebrate someone's transition but because there was no firm ruling in favor of the lgbtq community what this means is that it's an open question and with the current makeup of the court and especially the potential makeup if uh if uh, trump's nominee uh kavanaugh is is appointed by the senate i'm extremely worried that this could go negatively for the trans community Um I'm worried that uh, the transgender lawyer who essentially essentially set up, set herself up to be discriminated against to start this chain of events. It's it sounds kind of dirty, but it's fa- actually fairly common on both the left and the right to use this tactic. Um, I think that she may unfortunately have caused some issues for our community down the line. If this does go to the Supreme Court and it turns out that we have a conservative majority there, we could get a very bad ruling out of this. So I'm concerned. I'm not sure how it's going to go. Uh, It's definitely something... If, if you're trans or if you know someone who's trans or if you want to be in solidarity with our community, this is a case to pay attention to because there's a lot more hostility to the trans community than there is to same-sex marriage. So there could be a a bit more bias in court rulings regarding
0: it. Definitely with the current makeup of the Supreme Court, it's uh, it's a concern. It's a definite concern of what could happen and Unfortunately, many of those on the court right now are getting up there in the years. Uh, certainly, Justice Kennedy was quite old when he retired just recently.
1: Unfortunately, Ruth Vader Ginsburg is getting up there as well. She said she wants to hang on at least through the next presidential election, so uh, I'm rooting for her. <laughs> hang in there, Ruth.
0: Well, it seems like she lives a pretty active lifestyle, and that always correlates well with surviving into your old age. So we'll definitely follow this story, see where it goes and when there are updates. I intend to keep a watchful eye on it on the show. Unfortunately, while this is going on in the United States, our friends abroad are also apparently dealing with an issue that this, well, I had been aware in the back of my mind of the Colorado situation. This completely passed me by, so I'll have to defer to your knowledge of the facts of the situation as apparently the trans exclusionary uh, trans exclusionary radical feminists are on the rise in the United Kingdom
1: yes it's uh, it's starting to become a major issue for people who aren't aware uh, transgender exclusionary radical feminists also called TERFs are uh, self-professed feminists who oppose the transgender community Mm -hmm. They have an ideology um, wherein they hold that uh, gender is a social construct and as such doesn't really exist, and that the difference between men and women is a purely biological difference in terms of chromosomes and what's between your legs, essentially. Um And it's interesting, this is sort of rooted in uh, 70s and 80s era second wave feminism, where there was a great deal of focus on female empowerment and female sexuality, where in trying to help women to reclaim their sexuality and overcome things like uh, slut shaming and... uh, and just the very negative attitudes, uh, negative, very negative attitudes towards female sexuality. Uh, there is a great deal of emphasis placed on you know women's biological features, the uterus, the vulva, and so when in the nineties third wave feminism began with its intersectionality and its uh, focus on gender as a spectrum and gender as a societal phenomenon rather than purely a construct, uh, there was significant friction between these two groups and so the turks transgender exclusionary feminists have been around for quite a long time they've harassed trans women they've spread disgusting uh, rumors and misinformation they've always been sort of a They've always been sort of a problem for the community, but their profile has been relatively low. You wouldn't normally hear about them unless you were involved in the transgender community. Unfortunately, what we're seeing now in the United Kingdom is a rise of uh, exclusionary rhetoric in the mainstream press and a rise in the number of uh, anti-trans activists claiming to be feminists. Um, And so a lot of this has been documented uh, by an account called Casey Explosion on Twitter. She's an Irish feminist who was involved in uh, several campaigns with regards to uh, abortion and women's rights in Ireland. And uh, she noticed that she noticed the rise in uh, extremist turf views and the sort of rhetoric directed against Irish feminists by these self-proclaimed feminists. Um, who wanted to exclude trans people. And she started digging into these groups and where they were coming from. And what she's discovered is actually quite alarming. Um, She's discovered a political action group called Hands Across the Isle, which is a conservative, evangelical, essentially think tank um, and advocacy group, which has been building relationships with transgender exclusionary feminists in the United Kingdom and, to a lesser extent, Ireland. Uh, They've been funneling money to the turf movement in England. They've been funneling support. Um, There's been a trend of much of the language that's used by British turfs has begun to adopt a much more conservative and, in some ways, not quite religious, but certainly a a much more religious-inspired message against trans women. It's very much focused on fear of women as of trans women as the other. The fear of them as being men pretending to be women going into bathrooms to harass uh to harass cisgender women all the same stuff that we heard in Texas all the same stuff that we heard in North Carolina with the bathroom debate there coming from the ra- from the radical right and the religious right this rhetoric is now being espoused by people who call themselves feminists and they're and uh, they're spreading this rhetoric with the backing of US evangelical Christians and it's been speculated that since the uh legalization of same-sex marriage in the united states and obviously many other countries around the world the u.s religious right can't really fight against gay rights anymore you know lesbian gay bisexual rights they don't really have a central plank a central issue that they can rail against now that they can't the supreme court has decided the marriage issue so what they're trying to do is they're trying to split the lgbt community and attack transgender people specifically to try to drive the community apart. And in addition to the religious rhetoric, uh, what's rather more insidious is the attempt to drive a wedge between lesbians and transgender women by uh, by trying to insist that, oh, transgender women, who TERFs would call men, men pretending to be women, are trying to force lesbians to sleep with them, they're trying to erase lesbianism, which is ridiculous. There's no basis in reality of that. Sometimes transgender women get upset that lesbians won't sleep with them because of their genitals or other features. But there's not really a political movement to prevent... Lesbians from choosing their partners uh, and excluding trans women if that's really not who they're attracted to. There's no real, there's no movement in the transgender community to erase lesbians in that sort of way. But that rhetoric is being pushed by turfs who are looking to, like I said, split. The acronym, split transgender women away from the rest of the community so that they can focus on this smaller target with less well-defined rights. And they're doing this in the UK first because it's a smaller it's a smaller country it's a smaller media market it's cheaper to run advertising it's cheaper to reach a greater percentage of the population it's essentially a trial run for what they would like to do in the u.s if the religious right is successful in funding uh, transgender exclusionary radical feminists in britain you can be sure that they're going to do the same thing in america as soon as they have the opportunity if there's any success in the uk in uh, TERFs being able to limit transgender people's rights, I, I'm worried that that movement will come to America as well. So that's something that we need to be on the lookout for.
0: Well, it definitely sounds like that. I can kind of see why they would want to do it in the United Kingdom, because in some ways we have this misconception here in America that the European countries have always been more progressive or at least in the modern day, have been more progressive. When, in actuality, if we review the evidence as late to the game as the United States was, many European countries ended up legalizing same-sex marriage after us. I, I know Germany, for sure, legalized after we did. They were actually one of the last outliers
1: Ireland was after the U.S. as well, although notably they legalized same-sex marriage by popular vote rather than the court system. So in some ways that's more encouraging, but they were still late to the game.
0: Yeah, Ireland's one of those interesting countries that they've now had a popular vote on both same-sex marriage and abortion, and both passed with impressive margins. And so it's interesting that a country that has been so historically Catholic and viewed as conservative is having these progressive ideals, uh, especially given that their main political party has also begun drifting towards more leftist tendencies in recent times, especially as Brexit looms over everyone and the issue of Ireland and North Ireland comes closer and closer. On the topic at hand that this rise in turfs in the United Kingdom, and particularly in how this is being funded by religious groups. Something I've found really fascinating and really disturbing that I've read about is that in America we we have a sufficiently stable system that because we've had these rulings from the Supreme Court it is very unlikely that we're going to be able to significantly regress on this issue. That for all extents and purposes in the 50 states same-sex marriage is legal. Uh, as far as transgender rights go It's not as clear because we haven't had as many good court cases on it, but many states are giving better methods and procedures for things like driver's license changes and such. Because of this, even though the situation is not perfect here by any stretch of the imagination, and we still have problems on the daily basis of things in the bureaucracy like in Kentucky and whatnot, religious groups understand the fight has been lost here. They don't have much ground to gain and a whole lot more to lose. And they realize that if they continue to push the issue like they have, it's just going to continue to push public sentiment away from them. But because there are people who genuinely believe this to be a moral problem, that they they feel deep in their heart that people are going to damn themselves for eternity for doing this, they have gone to other countries. And particularly in Africa, this is one of those disturbing things that in places like Uganda, American religious groups have managed to either get past or rally support around existing absolutely repressive laws that I remember reading that they were actively encouraging a change to Ugandan law to allow for the death penalty to be used for cases of homosexuality being caught in the act, as it were. And, and and these are the people, these are the same exact people here in America, that when they're in America, they have a very different tone. And I imagine in a place like the United Kingdom, in these more more established countries, they understand they can't use that language. Whereas in places like Africa, where you still have... A country that is developing and trying to get its way onto the world stage and you have the promise of support from these rich american groups but in exchange they're asking a very awful price
1: i think that and this would This will probably piss somebody off, but I think there can be a very apt comparison made between America's export of evangelical Christianity and Saudi Arabia's export of Wahhabi Islam, and that both of our countries are, you know, deeply religious, at least in part, and we're exporting these really radical and regressive religious viewpoints onto the rest of the world, and obviously they're not representative of the sum total of those you know, religious cultures. Wahhabi is not all of Islam. Evangelicals are not all of Christianity. But this is really the most virulent, most rapidly growing segment of these religious communities, unfortunately. And they have capital and they're exporting their views on the world stage. And I think they're doing some real social harm in the UK, in the Middle East, and, and in Uganda.
0: Well, and I guess as closing thoughts on this topic that I know... Uh, well, I am not as familiar as I probably ought to be on this issue in the United Kingdom. I have run into my fair share of turfs in both my personal life and on the internet. Of course, much easier to find people with extreme views on the internet, as we all know. But uh, even, even in day-to-day goings-on, uh, especially at universities, it's always been amazing to me how divisive seeming allies can be people feel very strongly about it it's it's sometimes amazing that despite holding otherwise completely progressive views and otherwise having these complete acceptance of everything else it's just a topic that seems to strike a sore spot for some people that i think in some ways going back to second wave feminism and the political thought that came out of that and how it's interacting now that we're in third wave Kind of, sort of, maybe fourth wave. We—it's hard to tell nowadays. That, but the current state of feminism is. But this idea that what what I what I saw when what I saw when talking to individuals who felt this way at WSU and these were these were not old curmudgeons; these were young students about my age at the time that, or a little older. There was a perception that I saw that men who if, if we're being completely honest and completely accurate here, we're never meant to begin with. Transgender woman is a woman to begin with, just different stages. There is this perception that as what they see as a man becoming a woman is somehow diminishing the quality of womanhood. What I encountered was this perception that it's somehow taking away that you're adding this masculinity to their, their little segment of the world. That's what I saw.
1: Yeah, and I sort of misspoke earlier when I talked about second wave feminism as empowering women in their sexuality. To an extent that's true, but a large part of the second wave was in some ways rejecting elements of female sexuality by finding parts that had that they second wave feminists feel had been invented or manipulated by men. There was there were very strong currents in second wave feminism against pornography, against sex work, um, against traditional femininity, in favor of celebrating female power in a different way by freeing yourself from the shackles placed upon you by the patriarchy. But if you adopt that worldview, if you if you adopt the one of one of the uh, one of the best inventions of third wave feminism, and really the core component of it is intersectionality, the understanding of how multiple systems of oppression can overlap. You know, as socialists, we have the Marxist analysis of the, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, of the exploited worker being trumped—you know trumped on by the ultra-rich. If you look at everything in the world through the lens, through that Marxist lens, that's really going to limit your ability to understand things from different angles. Likewise in second wave feminism, when everything is analyzed through the lens of patriarchy suppressing uh, women, when you take that sort of class analysis and you take that as an absolute, as the overarching dominant hierarchy of society, when you take that system, it becomes very hard to see nuance. And so, if men oppress women, and women are defined by their biological characteristics, then a transgender woman, in the eyes of a turf, is simply a man adopting a costume to invade women's spaces. And if you take that ideology as true, then you can certainly see why they're upset, you can see why they feel so strongly about it, they feel that they are under attack by men, The issue is, because they're locked into this specific frame of analysis and they don't have an intersectional worldview that understands overlapping systems of oppression, because they're locked into this... Uh, binary dichotomous view of the sexes uh, because of that they simply don't have the tools to see trans women as women or to see trans women as an oppressed class they have to see them through the lens of men uh, of perverted men invading women's spaces and i think that's really the root of turf ideology and i think that's really where the second
0: wave plays into it All oh, very good thoughts and uh, it's it's a conversation that I'm sure we and others can have for a very long time. And I could talk for days. <laughs> there's books on the subject, and I'm sure they all haven't been written yet. So I think that's about as good of anywhere to put a bookmark there and see what comes of this, if there's any news in the future to reflect upon and see what's going on with it or how much more support they managed to garner in the united kingdom or in other countries or even here back here at home we we will keep an eye on that and it'll end up on this podcast again at some point i think we'll go ahead and wrap this podcast up if listeners want to pick your brain for further thoughts or read thoughts you've already had, uh, where can they find you at?
1: Sure. You can reach me at the Twitter page for the Los Angeles chapter of the Socialist Rifle Association. That's LA underscore Socialist RA.
0: On that note, we will conclude the podcast. For the listeners, I still intend to be releasing my special episode there's a lot of research going into it I try to always be prepared for these podcasts regardless but for this episode it's it's going to be quite a bit and I've also got another topic on the list to do I'm kind of deciding right now whether or not I want to continue with my current plan of the Trump Russia scandal that's ongoing or go ahead and switch to Antifa I listened to some stuff recently that just made me really want to do a good perspective on antifa that's that's definitely a very special episode that will take very special amounts of research and compilation to do justice to so i'm going to bid you good night till next time seize the means of production
1: good night everybody